A major preservation victory at Stones River has connected two separate parts of the battlefield. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we'll talk with historians Chris Kolakowski, Bert Dunkerley, and Caroline Davis. All three have written books about Stones River, and they'll talk about the importance of the battle and the battlefield today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment to say thanks on behalf of all of my colleagues at Emerging Civil War. It has, to nobody's surprise, been a rather tumultuous year for all of us with the pandemic and current events stresses and uh, lots of tension about the election. But fortunately, we've all hung together as a community of like-minded history lovers We've continued to explore that history and share our ideas, and even though we weren't able to have our annual symposium this year, folks still tuned in for our virtual symposium, uh, still came to the blog in droves, still bought books, even though a lot of booksellers were financially struggling because of the pandemic, the community came behind and pitched in and really pulled through. Similarly, the preservation community really felt the pinch as Donations to nonprofits across the board saw a drop off, and yet people still rallied around to achieve some significant preservation victories this year. So, on behalf of all of us at Emerging Civil War, we just wanted to say thank you. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and I'm joined today in our ECW version of Hollywood Squares by three of my colleagues, all of whom have expertise on the Battle of Stones River. And the little yellow box on my screen for Carolyn Davis just lit up, so I'll introduce Carolyn first. Carolyn, coming to us from uh, out in uh, the wilds of Indiana, but to Carolyn, you're uh, a former employee out at Stones River, and you and Bert Dunkley are co-author of a book about Stones River that's coming up in the Emerging Civil War series. Hi, how you doing? How you been? I'm good, how are you? I'm so glad to have you with us. This is delightful. <laughs> so um, I, invoked the name of Bert Dunkerley moments ago. Um, he is co-author with Carolyn about the uh, the book on Stones River. Uh, Bert, how are you today? Feeling good. Very good. Well, what's on your hat today? Oh, we got... Oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> Showing some Stones River love. Of course. Very good. And last but not least, my great Polish brother coming to us live from the great state of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Veterans Museum, Chris Kolakowski. Chris, how are you doing today? Doing fine, doing fine. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. Your book, uh, Stones River and the Tullahoma Campaign, This Army Shall Not Retreat. Um, first thing I ever read on Stones River. So you were the one who took my Stones River virginity and uh, it made a, a great impression on me. A fantastic book. So I wanna start there. Um, our reason for uh, getting together has to do with uh, a new acquisition that the American Battlefield Trust announced for some key property in the heart of the Stones River Battlefield. We're going to talk about that um, in just a second. But uh, uh, Chris Kay, let me start with you as the, as the person who wrote that book that first introduced me to Stones River. What impresses you about this battle as being so important? This battle, uh, first of all, for those who may not know what Stones River is, it's fought on uh, the last day of December, last day of December, the last day of 1862, so December 31st, through January 2nd of 1863. 
So it's at a really critical hinge point in the war in many ways. If you really look at the political context, particularly with the Emancipation Proclamation, some of the uh, elections of 1862 that have gone on, the midterm elections and things like that. So it's a really interesting inflection point when both these two armies, the Federal Army of the Cumberland and the Confederate Army of Tennessee, meet outside of Murfreesboro, Tennessee for those three days. Uh, those superlatives, uh, there are two superlatives that attach themselves to this battle that make it compelling. It's a high drama of its own right. I mean, the Federals come very, very close to death. I argue it's probably the greatest near-death experience of any large federal army, certainly to that point in the war, and only equaled by the Army of the Potomac's near-death experience on the second day at Gettysburg in July of 1863. It's the bloodiest battle by percentage of loss. Both armies lose 27 or 28% of their total numbers on the field, so greater than one in four men on this battlefield fall killed, wounded, or are taken captive or missing. The other thing is Abraham Lincoln summed it up very well when he taught when he wrote to, to the victorious federal commander, William Stark Rosecrans later, and said, I cannot forget whilst I remember anything else, that at the end of the last year and the beginning of this, you gave us a hard-earned victory that had it been a defeat instead, the nation could have scarcely lived over. And I'm a student of a lot of military history, a lot of American military history. I cannot find another battle where that superlative has been applied but it applied, was applied by President Lincoln to Stones River. And so those facts alone make this battle worthy of study and worthy of the uh, more attention paid to it than it has in the past. So Barrett, you and Carolyn are gonna pay more attention to it with an upcoming volume in the Emerging Civil War series. And I know many of our fans will be pleased to hear that book is forthcoming. Uh, tell me why is this uh, battle so compelling to you as you've been uh, researching it recently? I did have the chance to to work at Stones River as well. Um, I went to graduate school. I didn't school. know that. This is like, yeah. you're, you're like, where's Waldo? You know, like where, oh, yeah. there he is. There's Bird. Yeah, yeah, lived in Tennessee. Um, I, I went to graduate school in Murfreesboro at Middle Tennessee State University and uh, got my first exposure to the West having come from the East. And um, it's a fascinating battle. Uh, all the things that Chris mentioned, of course, are true. Um, you know, the, the controversy around Braxton Bragg, you know, all the, the discontent in the Confederate officer corps, that, that traces its roots to Stones River. Um, you know, an, an attack that nearly carries the day, uh, sort of like the first day at Shiloh. Uh, there, there's just so many fascinating aspects to this battle. And it's a battle that's not really famous or, or well studied or well understood. And I think our goal is to do justice to this battle. Carolina, I'll give you the chance to answer that same question. Now, what is it about this battle that you think is so compelling for people? Well, kind of echoing what uh, Chris and Bert had said, this battle, in my mind, is almost a turning point of the war because of the, the political ramifications and things along those lines that it has. And what Bert was saying, people don't talk about it. They don't, they haven't studied it in depth. They don't, it's a battle that, um, is understood by a few people, but not vastly understood like a lot of the other Civil War battles we have. Um, and plus, it's the Western Front, which, of course, is one of my favorite areas to study. Um, and I think the Western, the Western Front has uh, a bit, or the Western Theater, I guess I should say, has a bit um, of neglect going on still to this day. It's gaining some popularity, but not as much. So I think it's a, it's a key point. Um, to study and to really understand the 
the Civil War as a whole um, to include this battle in it. Now, I want to back up to something you said a second ago about it being a turning point of the war. And I know behind his eyes, Chris Kolakowski is going, aha, because he and I have had this discussion a lot. <laughs> and he's, yes, yes. Uh, I want you to tell me why uh, <laughs> this is a turning point of the war. And then I'll let my Polish brother um, get his two cents in on me, too. Yeah, sure. Um, so to me, I consider it a turning point of the war. It opens up the route um, through Middle Tennessee so that the Union Army can can move further south, get a foothold, and it allows for those those routes that leads us to more battles like Vicksburg and things along those lines. Um, and then, of course, like I said, with the political ramifications, um, Lincoln had to have this victory under his belt before he announced the Emancipation Proclamation or have it go into effect come January 1st of, of 1863. So with those two things combined with the the routes that it opens up for the Union Army, as well as the political ramifications, I don't see how it couldn't be a turning point. Okay. Uh, my, my Polish brother? I second everything Carolyn just said. Uh, the only thing that I would add is, is when people think of turning points, they tend to think of a positive definitive action. But there are, uh, there are turning points that prevent things from occurring as well. And that can be just as much of a turning point. Um, an example actually would be the Battle of Gettysburg, which people think is, some people would argue is the turning point of the Civil War. It prevented as, as much or more than it actually created in the event. And so, and the Federals by winning a defensive victory there prevented many bad things happening for the Union. The same can be said about the Battle of Stones River uh, six, seven months before. And uh, for all the reasons Caroline just pointed out, um, and this is a whole other conversation, perhaps for a whole other session, Chris, <laughs> but absolutely, that, that context in which this battle's fought, the stakes could not have been higher for both sides. And I have always, and Bert, I'm going to have you weigh in here in just a second. Um, but I, and I've always sort of thought that it was a manufactured turning point, and that the armies, the the the, uh, the army, of the Cumberland is so beat up, it can't really move, and it's only because Bragg leaves that it's sort of a default victory for them. But it's months before they can move, and you know when Lincoln makes his comment about. You know, this is the, the Union scarcely could have survived. It's months later. And so he sort of retroactively turns it into this turning point that he needed for political purposes. But at the moment, it, it was, you know, so shattering for the, the Union Army that uh, they couldn't move. Uh, um, Bert, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, one of the things that also impresses me is. Uh, the two armies are almost equal in number. And uh, I think there's, what, five, 7,000 man difference, uh, something like that, uh, almost equal in number. And they put a hurting on each other in this three-day battle. And I haven't heard that phrase used in a while, but that's a great <laughs> phrase. They put a hurting on each other. I, I just kind of made that up. <laughs> and coming as it did, um, you know, right after a union set back in front of Vicksburg, and of course the big defeat of Fredericksburg in the east where everyone's attention is focused. Um, crucial timing to have this defensive victory in Middle Tennessee. 
Uh, and and uh, Chris has written actually a, an excellent extended essay that was a part of our early emerging Civil War digital series about sort of the fall of 62 and the, uh, the, the big change that uh, Stones River really serves as the culmination for because, uh, you know, with the advances toward um, Maryland and advances into Kentucky, all repulsed in, in all the Emancipation Proclamation and the political turmoil that Lincoln is going through. And finally, he gets this victory at Stones River that kind of uh, um, really seals the shift of that pendulum. Uh, Chris, can you just comment on that a little? Did I, did I summarize your, your work correctly? Yeah, you did. You did. And I just want to comment on, on something and respond to what you had said and something Bert had said about It's not, all, it's not always apparent in the moment. You sometimes have to have the perspective of six, eight months. I can think of the Battle of Midway. The importance of the Battle of Midway was not fully appreciated in 1942 after the Americans had won. It was only six, seven, eight months, even 12 months later that people realized just what it had meant for the course of the Pacific War and for World War II. And you see that because Lincoln says what he says to Rosecrans about the battle eight months later, it's August of 1863. And so by that point, they've got enough distance, they've got enough time to realize, wow, we were really on the precipice. And Rosecrans was the key point, Rosecrans's victory was the key thing that pulled us back from the precipice. Because remember, two weeks before this battle, not even two weeks before, Lincoln had been in a cabinet crisis. He had, you know, there was a real debate about war aims and whether they were actually going to issue the final emancipation proclamation, which in a lot of people's minds, was not a done deal. It was in Lincoln's mind, but it wasn't a done deal. And it had to actually be an action taken on January 1st, 1863. And Lincoln had said, you know, there are a lot of people that want me to resign and I am half gratified. I'm half inclined to gratify them. <laughs> and he also said, if this is hell, I am in it. What relieves the pressure? News of Rosecrans's victory in Middle Tennessee. And then, you know, by the time he does make his statement in August, if you look at what that army has since done, you know, moving all the way down and, and capturing Chattanooga, the relatively bloodless and thus long forgotten Tullahoma campaign. Um, mm -hmm. So like there's a lot for that army to really be proud of. So it really had come back from the brink of death to, mm -hmm. of course, then Chickamauga is only a couple of weeks away. But uh, um, at that moment, that, that is really a kind of a, a key illuminating moment. Um, so one of the reasons that I have assembled the Avengers here to talk a little bit about Stones River, um, and I'm, I'm going to get you guys back into some nitty gritty in just a second, is that uh, the American Battlefield Trust recently announced a major, major um, preservation victory there. And I want to um, kind of bring up this map on the screen uh, and point out this area here that is highlighted in the center. Um, huge acquisition. Um, Carolyn, you have worked at the battlefield most recently, so let me kind of let you take a stab at this first. Um, why is this piece of ground so important for us to be looking at right now? Well, it's, um, I mean, it's 42 acres that, that played a key role in the battle, um, especially on December 31st with that, um, when the, sorry, excuse me, the Confederates start pushing through and that's where a lot of the Union artillery was amassed there, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And they're they're pushing through and so for December 31st, that's where a lot of the brutal fighting um, occurs as the Confederates are moving out of the area known as Hell's Half Acre. And 
so just the the importance and the the key significance to all of that, I, I don't think can be understated at all, um, in how it plays in the battle. And so by us getting this land, I know when I worked there, granted that's been six almost seven years ago now, um, but it was it would have been great to be able to interpret that land and have people go out there and really be able to see what it is. And I think. The, the coolest thing about getting this land is so often we're at these battlefields and we're constantly telling our visitors, well, just imagine what it would have looked like in 1862, 1863, whatever year it is. And with this acquisition, we're going to be able to actually go out there and be like, all right, and this is what the battlefield looked like. We're going to be able to take out that just imagine portion of it um, and really give them a sense of what the battlefield was at that point in time. So, Bert, what are your thoughts as you're looking at this uh, bright green spot on the map? Well, I agree with what Carolyn said. Um, you know, Stones River is one of those battles, battlefields that is it's chopped up currently. Uh, there's a big piece of park property on the top of the map, the green area at the curve in the river, and then the main park unit to the to the south. Where, and and so um, what the trust is doing is is getting the pieces in between as they're doing at other places like around Cold Harbor. And that, that helps build um, a, a seamless experience for the visitor. Um, you know, you've got a railroad and a major highway and a lot of commercial development between these two north, the north and south areas of the park here. And this will help uh, improve the visitor experience because it's all about visitor understanding and preserving uh, the resources that are still left. And at Stones River, that area to the to the left on the map, where the Confederate attacks are coming from, that's all gone. All that's being developed. Um, saw it earlier this year. There's not much left that can be saved at Stones River. So this is a great opportunity to do justice to a battle that's been largely overlooked. Uh, Chris, you have mentioned how this new property not only then sort of physically connects the park, but it also fills in a blank because we tend to look at uh, the end of December and then look at January 2nd and we sort of forget kind of what goes on there on December 31st and, and January 1st. And, and tell me a little bit about the timing there. I'm glad you brought this up because this is one of the few pieces of the ground where you can interpret all three days. Usually the way the battle develops, it starts um, north being at the top of the map here. It starts basically at the southern end of the map on December 31st and ends up in the position that you see indicated here along the Nashville Pike with the Federals almost completely folded in on themselves like a jackknife. And then basically most people then are like, oh yeah, they, they skirmish, they, they kind of look at each other on the first, kind of like two boxers in a corner between rounds eyeing each other across the ring. And then on the second in the northeast corner of the map there, um, Bragg launches an attack in an effort to, to uh, throw back the Federals that have crossed the river there and throw them back to the position where Price's brigade was on the 31st indicated there on the map. Now it is true that the first, that New Year's Day was a pretty quiet day, but there was skirmishing. Men were losing their lives and blood was being spilled on the first day. And a significant part of that blood was being spilled on this land that is now saved. Because what happens is the federal line at the round forest, the Hell's Half Acre area that Caroline was talking about, where you see Wood, Wagner, and Hazen, they abandon that New Year's Eve and fall back about to where you see Schaefer and Miller's brigades marked there on the map. And so all of a sudden the front line moves onto this parcel. 
And so they're going to be shooting at each other and basically eyeing it, skirmishing in this parcel all day on the first and into the second. And the Confederates are from that parcel are going to look over their right shoulder at some point on the second and are going to say, wait a minute, there are heights across Stones River where the Federals have just moved on to and they dominate our position. And they'll report that to General Bragg and General Bragg will decide that he needs to attack the Federals and that will be the January 2nd fighting. So it's not just the physical connection, which Bird is absolutely right, but from a thematic and storytelling perception, perspective, this gives you a chance to interpret the all three days and if, to connect thematically as well, um, the December 31st, the New Year's Eve fighting and the January 2nd fighting. And I was just out at, at Stones River back in September. And, you know, one of the things that's always disappointed me about that battlefield is, you know, you come and you explore a really great core here, and then you've got to leave the park and you go through this commercial district, and then you go through this industrial district, then you can kind of find your way out here. Um, or there's a, a county park over here that you can park at and, and, you know, but it's, it's disconnected. And so it really makes the, the ending of the story feel disconnected from the main fighting uh, but this is really kind of where the battle gets decided over here on in january 2nd when bragg makes those attacks uh, breckenridge makes those assaults against that uh, that position it gets chopped up and then finally bragg's like okay time to leave but until then like it's it's still a pretty undecided question because of the hurting these two armies have put on each other um bert tell me a little bit about you know how important is that fighting on the second as far as, uh, from your perspective, in determining, you know, what happens here. Well, sure, and you should definitely let Carolyn chime in too, because she had an ancestor in that attack. Ah. But um, you know, Bragg's really out of options. He's he's used the bulk of his army for the big attack on the thirty-first, and they've driven the Union back as far as they can push them. He's on borrowed time. He's not getting any more reinforcements. Uh, the weather's bad. Supplies are low. He's got, you know, Breckenridge's division uh, available still. So it's his last chance to do something. And that something is going to be this attack, which uh, ends up being a disaster. And then when that's over, he's out of options. Hey, Karen, you had an ancestor there. Tell us about that. I did. Um, well, best that we can figure out that he was there. Uh, Robert Davis, he'd be, I think, four greats ago now. Um, he fought under Breckenridge and uh, he just kind of disappears off the map. We don't know what happens to him um, after the war or during the war even. We just know he left and he enlisted and he's with Breckenridge and the Orphan Brigade and then he's, he's gone. There's no correspondence from him, nothing. Um, so the best I can figure out is I'm able to trace him up to Stones River. Um, so I'm fairly certain that in that attack that Breckenridge launches against the Union there, He's probably one of the one of the many who who fell, and uh, that his records were just lost from that point forward. Um, and he was buried, probably buried with the unknowns. Um, but yes, so as far as I can tell, and what I've been able to do, as far as my research goes, Robert Davis was a, a soldier with Breckenridge who was uh, who fought against the Union at Stones River. Wow, that's got to make that uh, such a personal story, and uh, now an ongoing mystery to try to solve too. It does. Um, yes, it's been an ongoing mystery now since I started working at Stones River or since I worked at Stones River. And uh, it, it's been interesting, which also helps lead to my strong dislike of, of General Bragg. So, 
<laughs> yep. <laughs> so, the, uh, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of back up and we'll get to the beginning of the battle in a second. But since we're talking about January 2nd, is, is Breckenridge's assault a forlorn hope? Does he really have uh, any possible chance of outflanking, um, particularly from the far side of the river and enfilading the Union position? Uh, is his attempt to get across McFadden's Ford, should that have been attempted at all or not? Um, well, I go ahead, Carolyn. Carolyn, this is no. Good... You go ahead. Somebody... You're fine. <laughs> go well, ahead. People forget that, that Breckenridge's attack achieves its objective, which is to capture, recapture the heights where the Federals are. It's when they press their luck to the area of McFadden's Ford. McFadden's Ford is actually not the objective. It's the heights. It's drive the Yankees back and then hold the ridge. When they get to the ridge and they see the Federals fleeing before them, they press their luck. And to some extent, Breckenridge loses control of the attack. And when they go down the backside of the ridge, they go right into the teeth of the, that famous 57 hub-to-hub artillery bombardment that just absolutely shatters. What is it? What is it? 1,400 casualties in like 20 minutes or something? I mean, it's insane. And that's when the attack fails they have exceeded their orders. And as, so it had a chance. It succeeded as originally conceived. The follow-up after that is when, it, when they lose control, that's when, they, that's when it gets completely turned around. Bert, were you going to jump in there? Um, just to say that I don't know that um, that attack, other than recapturing the heights, which it did, would have changed the strategic situation, would have would have altered the course of the battle to the Confederates' favor. Um, I just I just don't see that as something that would have made a huge difference. Yeah. Carolyn, what do you think? You know, I I, I have to agree with, with Bert on that is I'm not sure how it would have changed the battle as a whole. Um, but like Chris was saying, Breckenridge he accomplishes the mission that he set out to do. And it's those, those moments that follow capturing those heights that, that really make it a, a, a bad, bad move on their part. Okay. You know, and I was uh, at Petersburg not too long ago and I was at Fort Stedman. And I think about kind of the same thing where the attack is successful at Jesus objectives. And then when the commander loses control of the attack and things break down and, and uh, discipline slips, and then that's when things tend to, to go off the rails um sort of a different situation here but you know you achieve your objective and then is it smart to keep going or not and, you know what what does a commander do in that moment of of success to to keep control um kind of interesting leadership sort of stuff to consider so let's back up since we're now telling the story of the battle backwards um Get us to Stones River in the first place. Let's back up into December. Um, Lincoln's had a, a pretty bad month with uh, um, setbacks in, in not only Fredericksburg, but Chickasaw Bayou. He's had political problems with his cabinet. And now suddenly his major army in uh, Tennessee is uh, gearing up for a fight. Uh, Chris Kay, why don't you kind of get us into Murfreesboro and then I'll have Bert open the action for us. I'll, I'll make it very, very quick. Um, William Stark Rosecrans leaves uh, Nashville the day after Christmas on the 26th of December. 
1862. Bragg is camped. He set up winter quarters, actually, in Murfreesboro with his army. And he fully expects that he's going to spend his winter there. And so when Rosecrans comes out, he kind of catches the Confederates a little bit off, off by surprise. And after a series of maneuvers throughout the area, between the 30 miles between Nashville and Murfreesboro and extending down partway toward Franklin, both armies end up concentrating in and around Murfreesboro, about two, three miles outside of Murfreesboro, basically in two parallel lines um, on December 30th. And that night, both men decide basically to do the same thing. They're going to hold on the right and attack on the left. And the difference is, and I'll let Bert get into more of this and Caroline to get into more of this as we go. The difference is Rosecrans like to sleep in. And he says his army's going to start its move to try and flank the flank the Confederates and start to move its left flank um, at eight o'clock, whereas Bragg is uh, Bragg says we're going to start moving at five forty five and by six or six thirty I want you to be engaging the federal right with my left and we're going to fold them back onto the Nashville Pike and if we and, and in both cases if we can flank the other army we will fold them in like a jackknife on themselves and be able to hopefully crush them and win a battle of annihilation and end New Year's Eve 1862 on a very high note for their respective sides. Once again, Rosecrans likes to sleep in and that's gonna make all the difference. And the jackknife plan works for Bragg. Bert, tell us about that. Well, the Confederate attack uh, that morning on the 31st is overwhelming. And I, I always like to compare it to Shiloh. Um, the Confederates largely catch the Union off guard and you know charge uh, through their camps and overrun the Union right, which is under General McCook. And one of my favorite Civil War quotes is that, uh, I forget what officer it was, uh, referred to General McCook as a chucklehead. We might have- That was one of his of staff officers, the, uh, Bert. We might, what's that? That was one of his staff officers. The uh, Rosecrans initially isn't sure that this is a, a major threat. So he's proceeding to uh, move ahead with his attack on the Confederate uh, other flank, but soon realizes he's got to pull troops from his left to reinforce his right. And so throughout the morning, we have Union reinforcements gradually uh, engaging the Confederates and slowing down their progress. And of course, you know, fatigue and disorganization set in, all the things that typically uh, upset an, an overwhelming attack. And it's along the Nashville Pike that, you know, that afternoon that the Union makes a final stand and the Confederates run out of steam. But I've always thought, you know, what, what a desperate situation. That Nashville Pike is their lifeline. It's their only way to retreat. It's their only way to get reinforcements or supplies. And the Confederates come really close to pushing them back and just collapsing the, the Union Army upon itself and it, I think it's one of the more desperate situations you can look at in any Civil War battlefield. Caroline, put us in that position. Because I remember standing you know, along the park road where the Confederates are coming out of the woods behind me, looking at the Nashville Pike, and thinking about the whole Union Army crammed into that sliver of land along the railroad and the pike. And what was that like for those men in that, at that moment? You know, um... It's hard to even imagine what it would have been like for them in that moment, just because at, at that point, it seems like it's just there's no way out of it. There's not going to be a, a road to victory for the Union at Stones River. Um, so you've got to imagine them them thinking about that and trying to 
to kind of rationalize that um, the situation that they've been put in, um, in those initial moments of battle and everything. And, you know, kind of going off of what Chris and Bert both said, I think it's just how they get to that point. Super interesting with the, the same battle plan set up. Um, and then they finally get to that point and they're, they're stuck in what most would have considered an impossible situation. So what finally saves them? Um, it's been a while since I've gone over this portion of the battle. So please don't hold it against me if I get anything wrong. And Chris and Bert, please feel free to, to hop in here on this one. Um, but it's, it's, key people there along the Union line, um, such as Hazen's Brigade and stuff that are able to hold those positions on the battlefield that allows Rosecrans the time that they need to to reinforce his lines um, to to make a difference there. And, and we've talked about the, the sort of the metaphor of a jackknife folding in on itself. And, and Chris, Hazen's Brigade is really kind of the hinge of that knife at that moment, right? Hazen's Brigade at the Round Forest, that Hell's Half Acre area we were talking about earlier, is, is the hinge. And if the hinge breaks, the blade will be separated and basically the army is going to collapse. Um, it, the stakes that afternoon could not have been higher. Um, and all along that line, um, it's, 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 if you want to look at a battle of how leadership makes the difference on the battlefield, there are, there are many leaders up and down, including Rosecrans himself, who everybody sees. Um, George Thomas, William Rousseau, uh, Lovell Rousseau, excuse me, and then even even junior officers up and down the line, just rallying their rallying their men, keeping them steady, and trying to keep that cohesive defense, um, and just making sure everybody knows that hey, we lose the round forest, we lose the area around the round forest, or if the Confederates get into this road, we're, it's done, you know, and that's easy for everybody to understand. That sets an easy objective. But without that strong leadership saying, hey, we're going to hold right here, even Rosecrans telling everybody we will win. You know, that made that made that was that extra oomph that was necessary to, to hold there right at the very end. And I think, too, you know, one of the things working to their advantage is, is that the Confederates are going to have to cross several hundred yards of open ground to get to them. So that suddenly turns them into targets. And as you said, we all know the objective here. So um, suddenly, you know, you can feel kind of a, mon a momentum shift on the battlefield there. Bert, I see you nodding your head. Yeah, um, I'm just envisioning that part of the battlefield. And, you know, think about it. These, these Confederate troops have been up since before dawn. It's cold. Uh, they've been marching and fighting for hours. They're, they're exhausted. They're at the end. And now they've got to make that final push and um, it's just more than they can do. So night comes, everyone takes a time out so they can watch the ball drop in Times Square and baby New Year shows up. Um, what's it like the first of the year on this battlefield where these two armies have just mauled each other the previous day? There's a lot of accounts of um, you know, it was a cold night, of course, and uh, the wounded freezing out there on the battlefield. Uh, you know, they can't get water, they can't get heat, they can't get food, they can't get treatment. Uh, of course, the Confederates have overrun a lot of Union camps, so they've got some captured supplies and tents, but it's a pretty miserable night and New Year's Day. So as the day passes on the 1st of January, what are the two commanders thinking? Are they... 
is it over? Are they both expecting the other to attack? Are they both wanting to attack themselves? What's going on? Well, on New Year's Eve, both commanders, the fighting on that day, both commanders had had, had, had a great impact on them. Bragg reports to Richmond that he's won this incredible victory, basically driven them from the field everywhere except on their extreme left. And basically, Rosecrans is going to withdraw, is, is if you read between the lines of his message to Richmond, I've won the, won the battle, and tomorrow the Yankees aren't going to be here. And what a great victory for all of us. Rosecrans and his, core, his chief commanders, Thomas L. Crittenden, uh, George Thomas, and, and Alexander McCook, all meet that night. And there's some evidence that Rosecrans was, it has chief of staff decapitated in front of him. So he's a little out of sorts, not to mention the stressful day that he's had. And it kind of goes back and forth in his council of war. What are they going to do? They scout, make sure that the position is secure. And Thomas is the one who turns it, he says, this army does not retreat. And Rosecrans's comment is, go back to your commands and prepare to fight and die, gentlemen. And the Army of the Cumberland is going to be there in the morning. When Bragg sees this in the morning, Rosecrans's whole strategy at that point is, we're going to hang on. We're going to, all we have to do is hang on one more round and let the Confederates come at us. We've got a strong position that we clearly could demonstrate we, we can help. We clearly demonstrated we can hold the day before. We're not going to do anything until they show their intent. Bragg, for his part, and this is one of the things I've discovered about Bragg's generalships. You know how a lot of the great generals can often think two or three moves ahead? Bragg can never think more than the next move. He's never demonstrated that ability. So he has no plan for when the Confederates wake up on the morning of New Year's Day and see that the Union Army is right there, ready to go for another round. And Bragg, that's a to my mind, in large measure, why you have the passivity of the Confederate army, aside from skirmishing. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. These two armies do scrap with each other, skirmishing. Sparks do fly on the 1st of, uh, first of January. But that's why Bragg is kind of left at a loss. When you read the reports, you read the accounts, that impression comes through. And so that explains, you know, that gets you through the first of the New Year's Day. I want to back up to your comment about uh, Rosecrans seeing his chief of staff being decapitated. And I've always thought about that particular moment. Um, had that been, for instance, an explosive shell that came in um, and what that might have done to the high command of the Army of Cumberlands. Walk me through that for a second, Chris, because that's that's a fateful artillery shot in some ways. Um, well, Rosecrans, first of all, has this is not his first near miss. He'd had a couple of them during during the day. In fact, if you read William Lamers' biography of Rosecrans, Edge of Glory, they recount several of those. And one of them is an explosive shell that actually strikes uh, the haversack of his aide that's carrying the general's lunch and rips it from his, the, aide's, uh, uh, the aide's shoulder. So he's had a few near misses. And it's late in the day, the round force fight's going on, and he's riding down with his staff in front of him, and a shell passes, passes by his head and strikes right here his chief of staff and one of his best friends, Julius Garishay. Takes Garishay's head off. Rosecrans is doused in the man's blood. Corpse goes forward a little bit and then slumps to the ground. And everybody in that sector sees this horrible public death. And Phil Sheridan says, um, at that moment, self-control was vital. 
and Rosecrans had it. If he had lost, if he had lost his self-control and panicked and left the field, the army might have wavered. But Rosecrans's personal example sustained everybody. Later, however, that night he cuts the buttons off his coat, Rosecrans does, and puts them in a box that he'll keep for the rest of his life. Buttons I wore the day Garishay was killed. So it had a tremendous, tremendous impact on him. Um, and I would argue probably carried, he probably carried that moment with him for the rest of his life. So Carolyn, um, on January 1st, uh, Chris has told us a little bit about Bragg's mindset, a little bit about Rush Krantz's. How do you assess the, uh, the two leaders at this critical junction in the battle? So on January 1st, um, you know, like Chris had said, both commanders had already written back to their superiors, letting them know that they had won this battle. So it, it, it's hard to imagine what they both thought when they wake up on January 1st and both armies are still basically in the same position, with the exception being the Union has been able to kind of reinforce their position um, where they are. And so I think for Bragg, especially waking up and realizing that the Union Army is still exactly where they are is probably a bit more devastating to him than it was to Rosecrans at the time. Um, just in my mind, I would assume so, because both armies have already gone through just this overwhelmingly awful situation on the day prior and to wake up and have both armies be where they're at. Um, and then for Bragg to see that all, despite all of the efforts made on December 31st, the Union Army is still here. Um, they didn't retreat like he had planned and probably was just flat out hoping for. So he then makes those uh, assaults against the Union left flank on the 2nd of January, doesn't go or what goes according to plan and then some, uh, so then falls apart. Uh, so then he makes this decision to leave. Um, how consequential is Bragg's choice to leave the battlefield? Uh, Bert, let me toss that one over to you. I don't know that he had a lot of options because he's not getting any reinforcements. His army's low on supplies. Um, and, and in pulling back, you know, morale just plummets. <clears throat> There's a lot of dissent among the uh, officers. And, you know, you start to see uh, Bragg's reputation get tarnished. You know, we all think about Bragg and his, his stormy relationship with different commanders. That starts here at Stones River. Um, I mean, there was, there was some tension already, but it really explodes after Stones River. So, and he'll, he'll have problems with his high command for months and months and months until he's finally removed after uh, Chattanooga. Uh, so uh, my Polish brother, um, how about for Rosecrans? He inherits the battlefield. He, he gets a, a win by default because he has the battlefield, but uh, maybe it's not quite so by default because morale's still pretty high, isn't it? Brown's very high. And actually, he gets reinforcements, including one of my ancestors' units, the 21st Wisconsin, that arrives on January 3rd. So new supplies, new reinforcements is a little bit of a, of a reinvigoration of the strength of the Army of the Cumberland. And then he marches into Murfreesboro on January 5th and decides to camp there um, for, for many reasons, not the least of which being that uh, his army is almost out of rations and the railroad behind him is, uh, needs serious work. Um, if it's going to sustain his army in the advanced position. Um, but yeah, Rosecrans, Rosecrans has won a victory. He's won a great victory. And uh, Lincoln, when Lincoln responds, when he reports this to Washington, and you, you can read it now in the official records, Lincoln's 
response leaps off the page in relief and joy that there's good news from the battlefront, uh, you know, as 1862 turns into 1863. Um, and so, yeah, morale is very high. Rosecrans' star is very much in the ascendant in the War Department at this point. Um, and the Army of the Cumberland has proven itself in yet another defensive battle, which they had done at Perryville in Kentucky in October of 1862. They have proven that they can take whatever the Confederates are throwing at them, hang on, hold the field, and force the Confederates to retreat. And you know what? That's a pretty good track record to have if you're a federal soldier in that army at this point. Yeah, and so they can look ahead to 1863 after the winter. They can look ahead to optimism and know that they, you know, basically it's Rosecrans's, Rosecrans has the initiative in Middle Tennessee and will continue to have the initiative um, for much of the next six, eight month period. And to me, it really strikes me, his, his movement into Murfreesboro, you know, only what, a couple miles at most, right? But it's so symbolic in that he still makes like one final move forward to consolidate his position. So it's not just that Bragg slips away and there's Rosecrans, but like Rosecrans makes one final plant the flag kind of movement. And I think that that does a lot to set the tone for the rebuilding of that army because uh, Bert, that army is in pretty bad shape by this point though, right? Oh, absolutely. And the other important thing, I, I think a lot of times we, we study the Civil War, take it for granted that, you know, the Confederates were driven out of Tennessee and it, it's a Confederate state, but it, it, for most of the war, it's not Confederate hands. Um, that really occurs after Stones River. The Union Army takes control of Murfreesboro. They build a huge fortress, Fortress Rosecrans. It's a supply base. It's a recruitment center. It's uh, on the rail line that leads down to Chattanooga and onto Atlanta. And you know, everything that we take for granted about the later campaigns of the war in the West uh, trace their roots to here because uh, the Union controls Middle Tennessee. They control the supply line, the route further to the south. Uh, the Confederates are not able to draw supplies or raise troops in Middle Tennessee or really anywhere in Tennessee for, for the most part. Uh, all of that traces it, its roots to here, uh, to this moment. Caroline, I'm going to ask for your assessment in just a second, but I just realized I used the, the phrase a plant the flag movement. And that really should have been a perfect opportunity for me to talk to my uh, good friend, uh, Chris Kolakowski about the flag collection that you have in Wisconsin. So here's a chance for you to talk a little bit about, I think a, a really cool resource that your museum has at the Wisconsin Veteran Museum. And then I'll actually come back to Caroline. Well, thank you for that nice, easy, easy uh, opening there to plug the museum. The Wisconsin Veterans Museum, um, houses the battle flag collection and houses is got its start in 1901 in the state capitol is the GAR Memorial Hall. So we're the custodian, the state custodian and state military museum of the Wisconsin Civil War units. And so the battle flags of the Wisconsin units that were at Stones River, we have a lot of in our collection battlefield pickup items, um, items from soldiers that fought there, um, documents as well. Um, it's a really tremendous resource if you want to study Wisconsinites I mean, even people that later lived in Wisconsin and had served in other units that were involved in Stones River. Um, our online, on our website, you can Google Wisconsin Veterans Museum. We've got an online catalog. You can look at everything that we have. And we're actually going to showcase it on our Facebook page on New Year's Eve, which is the anniversary of the first day of the battle this year. Um, we're going to be showcasing some of the items in our collection. 
Um, so it's a tremendous, tremendous resource that um, I hope people will explore a bit more and put more human face on some of the things that we've been talking about here uh, today. And we'll be sure to include a link to that uh, on the website at Emerging Civil War so folks can find their way there. Caroline, sorry to take us on that little tangent for the, uh, the museum. Um, what's your assessment of things now that uh, Bragg has withdrawn, Rosecrans is starting to try to get himself back up on his feet, what now? Well, I think um, kind of what I said at the very beginning about Stones River being a, a turning point of the war, um, and I know we talked about whether it was a turning point at that moment as soon as the battle ends or whether it was six, seven months down the road, but I think this is the first time when you really start seeing um, what that means for for Rosecrans and his army there um, and getting back up on his feet and the, the road through Middle Tennessee on down further south has has now essentially been open because Bragg has has left the area, and so I think um, I think for Rosecrans he's he's realized that now as well, and so he, like you said, kind of plants his flag right there, um, making it known that he is there and they're they're there to stay. They're gonna they're gonna stay and hold their position, and hopefully be able to push further south in the coming months. So, uh, as I mentioned, I was there at the uh, the battlefield in September, and the park's road that kind of guides you through has changed. It was a, a big difference from when I was there the first couple times. Mm -hmm. um, so let me ask the three of you, um, just as, as people go to explore this battlefield, what do you each think people should pay attention to? What's cool to you? What do you like about the battlefield itself? Uh, and Caroline, can I, can I start with you? Because I think you were there most recently. Um, the work experience compared sure. to Bert, um, well, actually I didn't know that Bert had ever been there but it must have been long ago just in <laughs> and that's why Bert was there so. <laughs> um I mean as far as seeing the battlefield and everything for visitors I it's hard to to say there's certain places that you have to check out um my personal favorite portion of the battlefield are is the location there around McFadden's Ford and the events that happened on January 2nd, that's a very uh, personal connection for me as to why I enjoy going out and exploring that area of the battlefield. But I think the park as a whole for, for what they have to work with has done a really awesome job in uh, um, laying it out in the tour road and being able to, to kind of drive through and see, see all the different locations is, is pretty cool. So I don't have anything specific to tell anyone except for check out McFadden's Ford in uh, January, second events there so a great little walking path that takes you right down to the mm -hmm. port and everything so really, really yes great. as long as the river is not flooded as bert and i uh, found out yeah. the last time we were there visiting <laughs> it's uh it gets a little treacherous if uh, if the river has flooded so bert uh recommendations for, from you for the battlefield well my favorite part of the battlefield is the slaughter pen which is a, a rocky outcrop area where uh, Union Division under Phil Sheridan made a stand, uh, eventually almost being surrounded on three sides. And I just think about the desperate situation, knowing that they are becoming surrounded, knowing that they have to hold out so that other troops can, can prepare to defend behind them and by the army time. And that's kind of uh, summarizes the battle as a whole, is the Union has to hold out uh, in this difficult situation. Just in general, what I would tell to people who go to Stones River is just remember 
when you tour the park and drive around, you're only seeing a fraction of the battlefield. Uh, just you just have to appreciate the fact that beyond the park boundary where there's housing and medical centers and shopping centers, there was heavy fighting in those areas that you can't get to. And it just helps you appreciate the scale of this battle. My Polish brother, uh, your favorite part or about the battlefield recommendations about seeing it? Well, first of all, to piggyback off of what Bert said, I'll, I'll say I, I liken it always to Fredericksburg. It's the Fredericksburg battlefield of the West in the sense that what's in the park is extremely well preserved and interpreted. And matter of fact, the, within the park, they've done a beautiful job restoring the terrain to 1862. But once you get outside the park, there's a lot of blood soaked ground that has been developed, lost to development over the years. Uh, just like the Fredericksburg battlefield, which many of our viewers are probably very familiar with. Uh, so that's something that's always kind of analogy in my head. For me, it, I would take it to the next level. It's the Round Forest and the Stones River National Cemetery, where the Union Army made their last stand. Uh, there is something that is extremely, to, to me, extremely sublime about that ground. Um, some of the men that are buried in there died defending the hill that uh, they are now buried on. Um, and there's something just incredibly poetic and sublime about that whole thing. It's also, by the way, the home of the oldest Civil War monument on its original location which is the Hazen Memorial, which was put up in the spring of 1863. So, so something happened there. There's something spiritual in that ground that touched the participants in 1862 and 1863. And for me, is I find to be still evocative today, over 155 years later. Yeah, uh, just uh, I think a, a wonderfully well-preserved battlefield when you get into the core of the battlefield and uh, you can really kind of get lost there. Um, I think that's just a, uh, your, your use of the word sublime describing the National Cemetery is so perfect. It's a long, narrow cemetery um, sandwiched between the road and the railroad embankment. And so it's in some ways almost like a parade ground of, of gravestones. And it really makes a, a really strong impression when you stand there and kind of see them um, in some ways out on their final dress parade. Uh, made a huge, huge impression on me. So um, final thoughts about Stones River before we wrap up and I'll go in reverse order this time and I'll start with my Polish brother and do Bert and then do Caroline. So Chris. This is a battle, uh, Lincoln said it best. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tremendous human drama. It's an incredible battle. It's an important battle, not just for the Civil War, but for American history. It deserves more attention than it's been getting. And I hope that our discussion today motivates people to learn more about this critical, critical moment um, in, in Middle Tennessee during our Civil War. Bert? I'll echo what uh, Chris just said. Uh, it's a tremendously important battle. I think one reason why we don't study it or hear about it more or talk about it more is that there is so little to see. Uh, you know, only, what is it, maybe a tenth of the battlefield is preserved by the park. So I urge people to read about it, go to the battlefield, and support the trust's current efforts to buy that land. Carolyn. Yeah, um, kind of what Bert and Chris both just said, echoing their thoughts. It's a uh, it's an amazing battlefield and it doesn't get the attention that or the recognition that it deserves. Um, and I, I applaud the trust for their efforts in getting this land and purchasing this land and, and helping us to preserve that, the, the battlefield um, as well as they have so far. 
And I'll just wrap up uh, actually by saying thanks to Bert and Caroline, because uh, with their book coming up, they needed photos. And so they asked uh, if I'd swing by the battlefield and pick up some, some pictures for them since I happened to be out there. So I really had the chance to spend a whole day photographing the battlefield. And so, you know, you have to kind of take a slower, more deliberate approach when you're kind of exploring a terrain that way. And so to really have that kind of intimate time with that battlefield was just such a gift. So I want to thank both of you for giving me the excuse to go do that because um, what, a, what a wonderful experience it was to really take my time and look very closely uh, at the battlefield and what was going on there. Beautiful, beautiful spot there. So um, I want to thank all three of you for spending some time talking about this today and recommend to our listeners and viewers to uh, go out and check Chris Kolakowski's book, Stones River in Tullahoma, This Army Shall Not Rep uh, retreat from uh, History Press, uh, and then look for the forthcoming book in the Emerging Civil War series from Burton Carolyn, um, as of yet untitled, as I as I believe, but it'll be coming. Believe me, we'll we'll let you know when it's on its way. Um, uh, Bert, Chris, Carolyn, thank you so much for spending some time talking with us today. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. I'm Chris Bukowski, and on behalf of my colleagues, thanks so much for joining us today. We will see you online and on the battlefield. And let's say thank you to our engineer, Jackson Mikowski, for his work. Also, thanks to the Second South Carolina String Band. They provide our theme music. You can find them online at civilwarband.com. And don't forget to join us online at emergingcivilwar.com. 30 of us, free content every day, lots of different ideas, backgrounds, interests and perspectives, as well as writing styles, and all trying to keep you connected with America's great story. Join us. We'd love to have you part of the conversation at EmergingCivilWar.com. I'm Chris Mikowski. On behalf of Chris Kolakowski, Bert Dunkley, and Caroline Davis, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs>